If you, um, if you don't have your Bible with you, just raise your hand, and uh, one of our ushers will bring a Bible to you. Uh, they'll run one right over to you. And if you don't have a copy of one of our bulletins, that's going to be really helpful to you. There are, there's uh, sermon notes on the back that will assist you. So if you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have one of our bulletins, just raise your hand and we'll get that to you right away. Um, just raise your hand. If you'll turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 13 through 22 today. And while you're turning there, uh, I don't know if, if any of you caught this news story that was in USA Today last week, um, but there was, a, there was a big controversy in Israel this past week because it was a group of Jewish people who went up to the Temple Mount, which is the place where the Jewish temple once stood, where there is now uh, an Islamic mosque. And the rule of the land is that non-Muslims can visit the Temple Mount, but they may not pray. That's, that's, that's the law. Uh, that's the law there in Israel, and it's certainly something that the Muslims feel very strongly about. But in fact, it was a group of Jewish people who went up to the Temple Mount, and in defiance of the law, were walking around with their cell phones, pretending to talk to someone, and mumbling prayers as they went. And they got busted. And uh, there, was some, there was some security guards there uh, from the mosque, and they said, hey, you're not talking to anybody on the phone. You are praying at the Temple Mount. And it was a big controversy, published in USA Today uh, last week. The temple, the temple, which it isn't there. It was destroyed, but that is the place where the temple once stood. And in fact, the idea, the whole theme of a temple, a place where God and man connect, the place where God would dwell with man. The theme of temple is throughout all of Scripture. Like starting with the garden, right? There in the garden, man and God dwelt together. And, and then, and then in, in the patriarchs, right? You would see Abraham and you would see Jacob setting up altars. Altars to commune, to connect with heaven itself. And then, and then you would see the tabernacle, right? In the days of Moses, there was the tabernacle, and this was kind of the proto-temple. This was the, the place where God said, I will be there with you. And then the temple itself. And then we know that in the new heavens and the new earth, God will dwell with all mankind there And the whole of existence will be like a temple. The whole scriptures points to this theme of temple. Of course, temples are weird to us. They're just weird, right? When I think, even like, like like I study the Bible a lot, and still, (laughs) temples seem weird. They think like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and scary and like, and, and Buddhist temples and, 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 and pagan temples. Temples just seem weird to me. Do they not seem weird to you? Ooh, the temple. All right. I'll take that chuckle as yes, that seems weird to me. 
what is a temple? What is a temple? Because for all of time, in the ancients and even now, in pagan cultures, there's an understanding that there must be a way. There must be a place. There must be an opportunity where the, the temporal and the earthly and the fleshly and the human can connect and intersect with the heavenly and the transcendent and God himself. There must be a place for that. There must be a crossroads of earth and heaven. Those two must connect. And in fact, the, 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 the work of all religion is really to find that place and, and, and live in that place. The connection of heaven and earth. You might think that temples are weird, but I bet the question that drives so much of your life spiritually goes a lot like this. How can I connect with God? How should I connect with God? Or you may even say things like, how can I experience transcendence? Or how can I know a higher power? Where and how and how should this human person connect with a transcendent God? Well, what we'll find is that the lesson of this passage really tackles that. And the lesson of this passage is that Christ is Lord over worship. Christ is Lord over worship. And although it may seem strange that my worship, your personal worship, which what could be more personal than that, would need to be submitted to a Lord, that is in fact the case. Christ is Lord over worship, and we must submit our worship to him. So why don't you read with me this passage, John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Read along with me as we go. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, we, we, we were in the prior passage last week, and we saw that Jesus did his first sign in Cana in Galilee at a wedding. It was kind of like a private showing, right? Here, disciples, this is who I am. Boom. I'm the Lord of the wine. I'm taking us to the big party that God is going to throw, the feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. It was private. It was obscure. It was Jesus with his disciples. But now, Jesus is going to do a sign in public. And John presents this as his first public sign. And it doesn't get any more okay corral than this. He's going to Jerusalem, to the temple, on Passover. This is like, I'm walking up. To the White House on Inauguration Day, and I'm going to make a statement, right? Kind of best place, best time. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. 
and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. All. With the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. You see that? How he found each of these things, and then John, he painstakingly describes each of the things he found, and then he painstakingly describes each of the ways that each and every one of those things were driven out of the temple. He says, all. He uses the word pantas, like pantone. You know, pantone, like all the colors, right? Or pan-Africa, all the countries in Africa, right? All. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Interesting question. Not, what's going on? But, who do you think you are? Or, show us who you are to do this. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to, then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. So the lesson, the lesson that Christ is Lord over worship, and we submit our worship to him, it was really given to us here by John in really, I could say, uh, three ways, right? He, he gives it to us in an action, an action. He gives it to us in a person, and he gives it to us in a message, right? And the action is what? Well, the action's pretty clear. What does he do? What is going on here? I would say that a, a good way to describe Jesus' action here would be, Righteous, zealous, purifying. Right? We're talking about worship. And he comes in, Lord over worship, and he does this. Righteous, zealous, purifying. It's a righteous thing. It's a righteous thing. The disciples quote Psalm 69.9, right? Zeal for your house will consume me. I, I think probably worth just turning there real quick. Psalm 69. And uh, we can read verses 7, 8, and 9 to just kind of get a snapshot of this psalm. But it's a psalm of David. And he says this about himself. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. 69, Psalm 69. For it is your, for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. David says, I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is a psalm of David. And the, 
the disciples recognize it as messianic, right? Hey, this is the kind of thing that the Messiah would do. Why? Why? Because the Old Testament gives us like messianic fill in the blanks. Hey, when he, com- when he comes, it'll look like this. And he comes, it'll look like this. He'll come, and he's the only one. Well, there's actually some of that. But this is messianic not because Jesus is the only one who will be zealous about worshiping the Lord. It's messianic because it's right. Because it's right. David was zealous about worshiping the Lord, and it was right, and God honored him for it. And Phineas was zealous about worshiping the Lord, and God honored him for it. And Zerubbabel was zealous about the temple. And you remember when we studied Malachi, and Malachi was zealous, and he proclaimed God's zeal for his own worship, and it was right. Purity in worship is not just a Jesus thing. It's a right thing. It's for you. It's for you. Now, Jesus is not modeling for us how we should go around flipping over tables. He's modeling for us zealousness for purity in your worship. Zealousness for purity in your worship. It's a right thing. It's a right thing. Mount of Transfiguration, that's just a Jesus thing. None of us are called to go stand up on a mountain and glow. Purity and worship, it's a right thing. It's a right thing. Paul says in Romans 12, 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Will you see Christ's zeal here and you yourself have none? As if, well, zeal for purity and worship, that's a Jesus thing, and, and, and I, I don't need that. No. That's not what Christ shows us, and that's not what John teaches us. It's a right thing. Righteous. Purifying. Purifying. By that, I think John makes it real clear, it's an all thing. It's an all thing, right? You see, each and everything, he found the oxen and the sheep and the money changers and the pigeons, and he goes and he drives out the sheep. You, can you just imagine the scene? It's got to be on the brink of chaos already. There's pots of money of different sorts and different currencies, and then there's livestock mooing around, and well, I guess there weren't any cattle, so... Bang around. <laughs> and pigeons. Like you're on the brink of chaos as it is. This is, this, is, this is actually pretty easy. Make a little whip out of cords. Walk up to the first couple of sheep. Pow! Oh, that, we got that party started. <laughs> they go everywhere. <laughs> easy. You want to disrupt a money changer? All you have to do is pick up his pot and just pour out the coins. All right. Your day's over right? The pigeon sellers, that was a little hard. He just commanded them, get these things out of here. Each and every thing, purity, it's an all thing. It's an all thing. And so it is for us.
And so it is for us. If we would be pure in our worship, we cannot bring unrepentance or even casualness. Or even casualness. Right? John isn't condemning wrongdoing here. He never calls what's happening here evil. It's just absolutely inappropriate. Do we carry into our worship and into our prayer things that are just absolutely inappropriate? This is not zealous for the Lord. All of that has to go. All of that has to go. Right? It's like, well, Josh, um, here's your water for the, the morning. No one actually hands these to me. I bring them from home. Right? But here you go. There's just a little raw sewage in this today. Oh, just a touch. Okay. Well, we can handle that. No. Worship is to be pure. Your drinking water is to be pure. It's an all thing. Christ didn't walk up into the temple complex and say, yeah, this is just a bit much. I want 30% less livestock in here. The purity of your worship is an all thing. Don't fool yourself into thinking you can hold some part back and still worship. Oh, Sunday morning, that's for God. Friday night, that's for me. At least for now. Right? Everything else... We're going to keep in order, but the porn habit's going to stay in the dark for now. I'll just hold that back. You know, generous giving in worship is just a step I'm not ready to take. I'm going to hold that back for now. To paraphrase 17th century author, repentance, if it is genuine, is universal. He who does not repent of everything that opposes the Lord truly repents of nothing. It's an all thing. It's an all thing. And zealous, it's a now thing. It's a now thing, right? Jesus doesn't show up and say, I want to see 30% less livestock in here. Nor does he show up and say, "Um, when Passover is over, I'm coming back, and you better have a plan to clean this up. It's a now thing. Zeal is a now thing. He will neither tolerate a partial cleansing nor a procrastinated one. Isn't that our temptation? We don't mean to hold anything back. We just mean to delay it. Lord, grant me generosity eventually. Give me repentance, but not openly. I want to be a living sacrifice, but don't yet require deeply sacrificial things. Zeal is a now thing. And so I would say, I would say, To those who might 
might posture this and say, well, you know, hey, I just trust God. I just, I just trust God. You know, I, however impure my or uh, lack of zeal, what I have, I just trust God. It's all good with him. I, I, I trust his, his grace. No, you don't. That's not trusting the Lord, right? Because the Lord himself said in Hebrews, without holiness, no one will see me, right? If you trust me, you trust what I say. You trust what I say. Don't, that, that is exactly the money changer's mistake, right? Oh, we, we trust the promises of God. He gave us this temple. He's promised to save us. So we'll just be casual about the whole deal. That's the money changer's mistake. But I, I would also say to those, I would also say to those who recognize I can never be pure enough. I can never be zealous enough. How could that be? How could I purify my worship? How could I, how could I be zealous enough? In Christ, it is all enough. If you are believing and trusting the Lord who died for you in him, it is zealous and it is pure enough. Do you see the tension between those two? Scripture, scripture resolves it. Don't think we can worship in purity unless we're trusting the one who is pure and following him as he calls us to walk in it. That's trusting him. So we submit our worship to him. That means righteous, zealous, purifying, but man that is heavy, man that is demanding. And by the way, like it's my worship anyway, who is this guy who can say what my worship needs to be? I mean, that's, it, it's, it's kind of presumptuous of Jesus to demand this of me. It's my worship. It's my heart. You know, they said something very similar, right? Okay, you're, here you are clearing out the temple. Here you are with zealous, righteous, purifying here. Who are you? And how should we respond to you? So I told you that John teaches us this lesson in an action and a person and a message. So who is this person? Who is this person? Well, first of all, what we see is that this person is God. This person is God. So when we talk about who is, who has this right to demand this purity and this zeal, well, the person is God. You can see right there in verse 16, he says, don't make my father's house a house of trade. My father, as John says elsewhere, making himself equal with God. He is the Lord over worship because he is the Lord to worship. He's God. As he says in verse 19, right? Destroy this temple, and he's speaking of his body. Destroy this temple, and on, in three days I will raise it up. Now, only God raises the dead. Only God raises the dead, especially if the person that's dead is the same person that's doing the raising. I mean, I can't even wake myself up from a nap. But Christ says, I will raise myself. The one who can reach down and lift himself up by the feet 
is his own ground. The one who can raise his own life is his own power. He's God. He's God. He says, I lay my life down and I will pick it back up. So how do you respond to that guy? Like the proper response to that guy is worship. Right? We submit our worship to him by righteous, zealous, purifying, but we submit our worship to him by worshiping him. By worshiping him. Thomas gets it right at the end of the book. He falls and says, my Lord and my God. John like finally gets Thomas there as, we, as he finishes this book. My Lord and my God. We worship him. How? Well, we did that this morning in music. Right? It's one of our pillars. Right? Lifting high the name of Jesus in worship. Right? And we do it throughout our lives in obedience. Right? Do, you, you, do you recognize that every step you take, every act of obedient faith is worship? And every step that is not an act of obedient faith is a fail, a failure to worship. Well, he's not just God. Just God. I mean, like, that doesn't even, those two words don't really go together. He's not just God. He's also, he's also the true temple. He's also the true temple, right? You see that in verse 22, 21? The temple that he was speaking about was his body. Remember, we started this morning talking about what is a temple, right? That a temple is the place where heaven and earth meet, where the transcendent and the temporal meet, where the God of the universe and men like us meet. Where there's, there's an intersection of all that matters most and all that just blows away. Right there. And Jesus is the essence of templeness. He is it. He is that intersection. He is the walking intersection of heaven and earth. And they don't see it. He is the true temple. And so we not only worship him because he is God, we worship in him. We worship in him as the true temple. He has the essence of templeness in himself. He is both God and man. And not only that, not only does he just have, have the essence of templeness, right? You would agree. He's both. He's together. He's the intersection. But he's also the function of a temple. What good does it do us if we can look on Jesus and say, yes, he is the intersection of heaven and earth if we can't come? We would just say, that's the true temple, and woe is me. I cannot approach. But he fulfills the function of the true temple as well. 
Because he died for your sins. And he gives you his righteousness. And he tells you, he bids you, he summons you, come and worship the living God. I can connect you. We submit our worship to him. Ultimately, that means worshiping him and through him. So, John shows us an action. John shows us a person. But he also shows us a message. He gives us an action to understand, a person to respond to, and a message to believe. Right? Because all of this is only possible if there is one key element involved. It's all only possible for you for you, if you're not short this one key element, gotta have it. And it's this believing. Believing. See how John punctuates the end of this passage with that? Right? Verse 22 And therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture. And the word Jesus had spoken. See how he punctuates the end of that passage? What about the one before that? Right? The sign in Cana. Verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Manifested his glory and his disciples believed. Now, you know, right? You know why John is doing this. Because we've been talking about this for a while. You know why he's doing this. Because although he's writing about the disciples, he's writing to you. What is he calling you to? What is he calling you to? He tells us, John chapter 20. Let's turn there real quick. Most of you will already have this underlined in your Bible, and if you don't, well, you can catch up with the rest of us. John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why he punctuates the end of the passage with the disciples' belief. In both of those passages and throughout the rest of the book, you'll see it everywhere. Because he's describing a belief, yes, but he is prescribing a belief. He's calling you to believe. Believe what? Believe what? Believe the gospel. Here it is right here. Here's the gospel. Jesus is alive. Right? Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken, that Jesus is alive. That's the gospel. And someone might say, well, you know, that's not the whole gospel. And they'd be right. They'd be right. It's an abbreviation. It's a shortcut of the gospel. Because if Jesus is alive, that means he died. He died for your sins. Right, so saying Jesus is alive is the gospel is kind of like saying, uh, that's my house. And somebody says, well, that's not your whole address. But you're right. It's 1426 Canyon Brook, San Antonio, Texas, 78248. Um, 
Texas, I already said that. United States, world, solar system. The gospel goes on and on and on and on. The implications of the gospel go throughout this entire universe. The world, the heavens, and the earth will all be renewed. The implications of the gospel, really, hardly, they don't stop. It's kind of convenient that we can shortcut it to this. Jesus is alive. But since I gave you my whole address, I might as well give you the whole gospel. Right? That this Jesus that's alive died for your sins. To give you his righteousness and take on your sins that he could be the true temple, not just in himself, but he could be the true temple for you. You can come. You can come and worship. You can come and worship in purity and zeal. He's made that possible for you. He died to do it. And this Jesus who's alive, who died for you to make it possible to worship, he is God. He's the God who created worship to begin with and created you and created all that you see and he's making all things new. He rose from the dead. He's alive. And he is the firstborn. He is the firstborn of resurrection. That we will all rise and we will all face him. And those who are in him will be granted eternal life. In fact, are granted eternal life now. And those who are not in him will face eternal judgment. That's the whole gospel. And isn't it sweet that we can say it this way? Jesus is alive. So we submit our worship to you, Lord. He is the Lord over worship, and we submit our worshiping to him. We believe. That's what John is calling us to. And so somebody might ask, okay, well, believing, what does that look like? What does believing look like? Well, it really looks like everything we just talked about. That's what believing looks like. Righteous, zealous, purifying. Worshiping him and worshiping through him. Trusting that you can come to worship because of what he's done. That's what believing looks like. Not, not trusting your own goodness. Not trusting your own goodness to obtain for you any right to worship the living God. But also, not fearing your own broken soul will keep you from him. It won't. If you will come in him, you can worship. Will you stand with me all over this place? I'm going to have the band come up as we continue to worship. That's what we're here for. We're here to worship a Jesus who has come back from the dead as the essence of what it means to be a temple. We worship him. So let me lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we, we pray to you 
because you are also God. And in fact, it is through you that we can worship the living God. And so we come to you and we come through you. And we ask that you would grant to us the kind of believing that your holy scripture calls us to. It calls us to a believing. You call us to a believing that puts away puts away all impurity, that even puts away all casualness and comes to you with a righteous, zealous purity. We ask that you would grant to us a believing that draws us to you, trusting your righteousness and your sacrifice alone, and nothing that we can bring to the table will merit the opportunity to worship you. And because of that, we, grant, we ask that you would grant us the believing that there is nothing in our broken soul that will keep us from worshiping you if we would come and trust you and trust you alone. This is the faith we ask you to grant us. For many of us, you have granted it already. Lord, would you continue to grow it in us? For some... We have, we, ha- we have not that faith. I pray that today would be the day that we would reach forward and in belief say, I want to come to the one who can be my temple, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.